got to pull up my notes here. I talk on my phone today. Whoops, come back. There we go. Thanks for that, Jenna. I didn't run. I was one of those. I'm a little tired today, so it's going to be my Sabbath. Um, so today we are back to talking about reconciliation. Uh, we've been on this train for a couple of weeks, well, more than that, a couple of months. It feels like time's just like standing still and flying by at the same time. Um, but uh, as Scott has said, there's been a lot that's happened in our country the last few months, this whole year. And um, the three big events that we've kind of identified are pandemic, economic crisis, and this like movement of, of racial tension, perhaps reconciliation. Um, and while we're not able to do very much about the pandemic besides be responsible, stay home, try to keep ourselves and the people we love safe, um, and economic crisis, there are things we can do, but it's also really big. Uh, we felt like the thing that we can actually, we could probably like invest in in this time is just learning about reconciliation and what we can do um, as River City Vineyard, as the body of Christ, as individuals to participate in what's happening in our country. So I wanna talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, and so here we go, jumping right in. Um, when we say reconciliation, just to refresh, we are indeed referring to the conversations around racism and white supremacy that are happening in our country right now. In May, with the death of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, our nation erupted. And it wasn't because people were at home and bored and just wanting something to be angry about, but it was almost as if these deaths were a fuse um, that brought honestly, centuries-long tensions to the surface. It was a boiling point. And if you remember, similar large-scale demonstrations happened in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, with the death of Michael Brown. That's when the organization Black Lives Matter was started. And it's been interesting to watch the current demonstrations unfold, because in just six years, it seems that so many more people are listening, paying attention, and talking about our country's legacy with racism. And I've heard from many black leaders in the church say that they actually feel kind of hopeful about what's happening right now. Um, saying things like, this feels different, like something is happening here. So just for context, when we talk about reconciliation and our participation in it, we're talking about how we can orient ourselves in this national movement and what it looks like to follow Jesus in our very real flesh and blood world. And so, just to anchor us in some scriptures this morning, I'm going to read out of Ephesians and Galatians. So Ephesians 3, 13 through 15. But now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Then in Galatians 28 through 29, we read, In Christ's family, there can be no division into new, Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, 
male and female. Those were the groups that were typically divided in that time. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, since you are Christ's family, then you are Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenant promises. When we read the New Testament talk about reconciliation like this, and Scott's been reading out of 2 Corinthians, talk about unity, one body, one humanity. I think if we, if we haven't ever been forced to grapple with those realities in a very flesh and blood way, we can over-spiritualize them and miss out on the significance of what's really being offered to us, like in our actual world, and our actual relationships. I think we're living in a moment in our nation um, to, we're living in a moment in our nation and we have the opportunity to step into the work of reconciliation, but it's going to be costly for us. This is a really small scale example, but just to illustrate this idea, a few years back, I had a pretty significant disagreement with someone I was in ministry with. Um, and it was very, very hurtful, one that significantly broke trust between us. And this person approached me a few days after and said, I just think we need to forgive each other so that we can live in unity together and not hinder any miracle-working movement of the Holy Spirit. And for me, that was a time when I was confronted with the idea of unity being over-spiritualized because there wasn't any effort at confession, truth-telling, and repentance that's necessary. It has to precede genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. I realized that because that person wasn't willing to take those necessary steps Forgiving them would be some, that would be my own journey, something that I was responsible for in my own heart, but the reconciliation of relationship that they had in mind probably wasn't possible until they were willing to demonstrate repentance so that trust could be restored. Reconciliation is gritty, it's real, and it's human. It's uncomfortable. You have to talk about hurt and bring it to the light and tell the truth. God knows that, and he still calls us into the ministry of reconciliation. We don't have to over-spiritualize these things or disembody them because the word of God, which is Jesus, became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. He's with us in our gritty realities and broken relationships, and he's inviting us to join him there. I think the cry we're hearing be raised by people of color in our country right now is that trust has repeatedly been broken between us, and there really hasn't been a wide-scale demonstration of repentance and response. And some people have even commented that we don't need racial reconciliation, but conciliation, because there wasn't really unity to begin with. The relationship between the people of European descent and the people of color in our nation has always been one of domination and abuse of power, and it's only truthfully in the last 50 years or so that we've actually seen people of color have similar opportunities to white people. But right now, the current Black Lives Matter movement is talking about systemic racism. And that means that even if we as individuals don't think we're racist, there's still a racial disparity and opportunity in our society because of our laws or institutions, written or unspoken, that haven't really been talked about and made right fully yet. I know some people like to resist the idea or the concept of systemic racism because that guilt, that makes you guilty like no matter what you do and it feels like, it can feel like there's no way out. But if you'll hear me out, um, hopefully we can bring some light to these things. Just to catch us up on a little 
little history lesson. Um, the progression of systemic racism up until our current moment goes something like this, and this is spectacularly condensed. 1619 was the year that the first enslaved Africans were brought to North American shores. And for a little over 200 years, these humans continued to be bought, sold, heinously abused, sexually exploited, separated from their families, determined to be less than human by bogus and very convenient science. Our modern police force can also be traced back to this time when people who owned land and business hired basically a group of watchmen to protect their property. And in the South especially, that property included human beings. Some of the first police in our country were essentially slave patrols. Then the Civil War happened, the Emancipation Proclamation officially ended chattel slavery, and after that, the American, and especially Southern American economy, was really hurt for the lack of free labor. And those were the conditions that essentially gave rise to the stereotype of black criminality, because the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that ended slavery actually says, and still says today, that slavery is permissible as a punishment for a crime. And so black people were increasingly identified as criminals and arrested by former slave patrols, and that's when convict leasing began. Plantation owners could lease incarcerated black people, and they were back to working in the fields. And then we had Jim Crow laws that sanctioned segregation and continued to strip basic dignities from people of color. They technically had the right to vote in local and federal elections, but were intimidated, brutalized, and even killed for exercising that right to vote. And this was well into the 20th century. This is what our heroes like John Lewis, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X were resisting in the 20th century. The fruit of the Civil Rights Movement was the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act that overrode states' rights on implementing Jim Crow laws and forbade segregation or discrimination based on the color of one's skin. But then there was redlining, and that actually started in the 1930s, that segregated neighborhoods according to race in order to protect uh, white people's property value, which impacts generational wealth, education opportunities, and upward mobility for generations. In some neighborhoods, there is actually still language about redlining and racial segregation in contracts when you buy a home. I've heard this from several friends. Um, I'm about the age when people start buying homes. And I'm from Wimberley, and I know this is true of some neighborhoods there. And it's not because they're all racist, but because updating those papers would mean that all homeowners would have to re-sign their contracts. And isn't that wild? That that language of, it basically says like, black people cannot live in this neighborhood. That's still in papers that people sign. So that's part of our recent history. And then there was the war on drugs that started in the 1970s and 80s and the tough on crime politicians that disproportionately affected people of color. Today, black people make up 13% of our general population, but 40% of our prison population. And they're 20% more likely to be sentenced to jail time and to receive sentences 20% longer than white people convicted of similar crimes. And this is especially true with like drug charges. Um, something a lot of people are talking about these days is uh, charges related to marijuana possession because many states are legalizing marijuana possession, but there are still so many people in jail for just a minor crime. This goes back to that stereotype of black criminality. When you're in prison, you can legally provide free or almost free labor to companies that contract with prisons. 
I don't know if you've seen, they've been kind of floating around, at least my social media uh, circles, a list of companies that all of us know that have, if not currently, have in the past contracted with prisons. And when you have a felony on your record, in many states you aren't allowed to vote. It's almost as if these old forms of racial discrimination have just evolved. This is systemic racism. And y'all, every time I've spent time around situations of injustice, whether it be victims of human trafficking, sexual exploitation, labor exploitation, neglect of our asylum policies, there's always some sort of rationalization that happens on the other side so these things can keep going. There's always something to say, oh, but it's okay because of this. It's not so bad because of this. It's almost like half of the battle for the work of justice is getting everyone else to believe that you're telling the truth and you are indeed experiencing injustice. There's a difference between telling the truth of your experiences and harboring a victim mentality. Those aren't the same thing. And I think until we're willing to truly listen to the testimony of the overwhelming majority of black and brown people in our country, that they are experiencing racism and that it's affecting their lives in damaging ways, because that's what we're hearing right now. We are never going to heal or move forward into freedom. I've been taking a course with the Vineyard Institute on reconciliation. And the course book is this one. It's called Doing Reconciliation by Alexander Finter, South African pastor, who is in ministry uh, throughout the time of apartheid in South Africa. And he tells a story of growing up white evangelical, going to a white church, but having black friends, listening to sermons by black pastors, and generally thinking himself unaffected by racism. That wasn't part of his life, wasn't part of his consciousness. He wasn't a racist. Until one day, one of his black friends invited him to come into his neighborhood called Soweto, which is one of the black neighborhoods that was created under the apartheid government. And if you're not super familiar with the history of apartheid, it was essentially government-sanctioned racial segregation through forced and violent relocations to essentially keep the races apart from one another so that they wouldn't have to interact because that was more peaceful. And this was a Christian government that instituted apartheid. When Alexander, the author, goes to his friend's neighborhood, he is astounded by the poverty that he sees and by the anger that people express towards him, a white South African man. He really felt a guidance from the Holy Spirit to continue spending time with his friends in Soweto. And that's when he really began to see his nation's systemic racism and discovered that racism and white supremacy were inside of him. And he engaged in difficult, painful conversations with the people he had been separated from. Their reconciliation wasn't easy or magical. It didn't just happen at the drop of a hat. It was painful and it took a long time to break significant ground. They came to the conclusion that racism is always a part of us because our society and our systems have inherited racism. And it's our job to actively demonstrate repentance and engage in truth-telling with sincere listening ears. It might also be worth saying that Alexander and his friends uh, who engaged in this work, um, they actually ended up starting a new vineyard church and were often accused of being too political. Why are you guys messing with this stuff? We don't need politics in the church. They were accused of being Marxist. You guys just want to be a Marxist, don't you? But I think they had to realize, they had, they had the courage to realize that unity and reconciliation take hard and uncomfortable work. 
And there's something really beautiful. There's beautiful fruit that came from their time of doing this ministry. And I would recommend this book a million times. It has been, it's been really great for me to read. And I think one of the things that impacted me the most in reading this was learning about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened in South Africa that was arranged by Christians such as Bishop Desmond Tutu. It was a time of national truth-telling, and it was broadcast, I think, like all over the world um, on television. And as South Africa was moving out of the apartheid system, they wondered if they should have something kind of like the Nuremberg trials that happened with the Nazis after World War II, because there had to be some sort of justice given for the crimes against the black population. And they decided that instead of punishing every single white person who had participated in the apartheid government, they would grant amnesty to those who are willing to tell the truth. Isn't that powerful? And listen to the stories told by the people that they persecuted, harmed, and killed. They determined that this was the only way they could move forward. Similar things have happened in Rwanda in the aftermath of their genocide. Germany has demonstrated incredible humility for its responsibility in crimes against millions of Jews. Children in Germany go on field trips to concentration camps to make sure that future generations remember the truth and the horror of what happened there. I don't think we've ever done something like that in the United States. In our history, we have genocide of entire Native American communities, brutalization and enslavement of Africans, and the subjugation of all their descendants. And it's only been, again, in the last 50 years or so that we've really seen any progress made in establishing a sort of equity and justice for wrongs done. And now we find ourselves in a moment of truth-telling. And I think the question the Spirit is asking all of us is, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to also tell the truth? Are you willing to be uncomfortable, to sit in your discomfort, and to wrestle with the ways that you've even unknowingly been complicit in the oppression of my people? Are you willing to demonstrate repentance? Because if you are, I will heal you. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done, and there is true freedom and kinship to be had should you step into this. We could use healing, don't you think? Are we willing to do that in New Braunfels? I had a conversation with a black woman a few weeks ago who told me her story about the racism she experienced here in our city within the last year. She was with her daughter at a restaurant in town and the treatment they received, the looks they were given were so uncomfortable that her daughter said she wouldn't be coming back to New Braunfels. She lives in San Antonio. Do we want that to be our reputation? What will it take for this to be a place where people like her feel safe? Probably some truth-telling, gritty and uncomfortable conversations. And maybe, I feel like probably most of us listening to this, we are, like, our response to hearing that story might be, yeah, but I would never do that. Like, what, what do you do when, like, I would, I would never do that, so how do I help them not experience racism? Maybe that means when you hear people make jokes, or when you hear people kind of like, I don't know, voice like a stereotype they have in their head, you can, you can lovingly confront them and you can have those hard conversations with people you know. And again, sitting with our own complicity and implicit biases 
and asking the Holy Spirit to help us change. Um, implicit bias, just to refresh what that is, it's, it's kind of just the things we have inherited that maybe we don't even realize until they one day just bubble out. I know the past few years I've had quite a journey with my implicit biases. Um, I have a lot of stories I could tell. I think this truth-telling isn't just applicable on a macro scale with these larger social issues, but also on a micro scale in our individual lives. When we come in contact with or have conversations with people we really disagree with, can we practice listening to the truth they're expressing? And asking the Holy Spirit, what's my response here? When God calls us to love one another, I think that's a big part of what he means. Are you willing to treat them as my divine image just like you are? You're made of the same stuff. I've called you to be one. I'm very thankful for friendship with the Holy Spirit as we walk through all these things. Past few months have been pretty uncomfortable for me as I remembered and pretty much realized for the first time ways that I've demonstrated racism, even explicit racism, even in ways, yeah, that were pretty direct. And it is painful and embarrassing. And I wonder, oh, should I, should I write something on Facebook? Should I tell people? What do I, like, what do you do with this when you realize these things? But I think we don't need to rush to express it. We just need to sit with it. Like before we, before we tell it, even, we don't even have to tell it, but we need to sit with it and understand what we did. And we're not, when you realize these things, you're not canceled. But as you're willing to acknowledge the truth and feel its weight, you don't rush to tell everyone about how you've changed, but sit with the implications and the discomfort and repent, change direction. There's a freedom and there's a healing to be had. There's a humility and a new capacity to listen. And there's a wholeness for our brothers and sisters, our family of color. The dividing wall really has been torn down between us. And so this week, I'm going to send out an email via MailChimp just with some meditations on this stuff, things I've been thinking about, books I've been reading, um, maybe a podcast or two. Um, and so maybe I'll just pray for us to end this morning. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for you. I personally am thankful for how tenderly you have loved me when I have been so wrong and so dumb. Thank you for your patience with us, but Lord, thank you for your, your zeal for justice and your zeal for freedom for people who are held in chains. And we thank you for the movement that's happening in our country right now. And Holy Spirit, we just say that we want to follow you. We want to follow you, Jesus. As we sit with you this week in quiet and in that trusting relationship, Lord, would you show us ways that we've been complicit with harming others? Would you give us the courage to sit there and to truly know what we've done? And would you teach us how to change course, that image of repentance that's turning around? 
and walk towards freedom and right relationship and wholeness. And we do ask, Lord, man, would you teach us, would you teach our whole country how to be reconciled? Because we love being right. I know I love being right. And, and love, I think it, there's an author who says that love in reality is actually harsh and dreadful compared to love in dreams. It's really hard. Love is a hard work, but it's what you call us to. And like Jenna said, when we're empty, we can spend time with you. And Lord, we know that you're faithful to give and to fill and to walk with us. So we're just so thankful for your companionship, Holy Spirit. And we just trust you with what you're doing. We trust you as our leader. And we ask that you would teach us, Lord, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We just say, Jesus, we love you. We love the way that you lead. We love you as our king. And would you teach us to be more like you? Amen.